You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, y'all. How you doing this morning? That's good. That's good. Well, um, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Jake, and I'm so glad uh, that you've joined us today. We're uh, continuing our series uh, in what we've called the Upper Room Discourse, or what's known as the Upper Room Discourse, which is found in John chapter 13 through 17. And this is the last set of teachings that Jesus gave his disciples right before he went to the cross. And so this is a, it's a fascinating set of teachings, really enjoying walking through that over the course of kind of this year, kind of on and off again. And last week, Justin brought us into John chapter 16 and taught through 1 through 15. And so today we're going to pick up at 16 through 27. And Linda is going to read that for us. And so if you will, if you're able, take, take, uh, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word and take it away, Linda. You're good. Okay. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more? And then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, A time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, you can take a seat. Oh, so... It's common, uh, even easy, uh, to believe that God is anti-joy. I mean, one of the uh, classic views of God is that he's the great killjoy in the sky, right? That he's just out uh, handing out rules for you to follow and punishments if you don't. That he's just out to keep you from doing what you want to do and having all of the fun that you want to have. The great killjoy in the sky. There's a chance that some of you kind of have that view of God. Others of us, we we struggle with thinking that God really even just cares about our joy. 
primarily because uh, there are times where you just feel like, okay, if God really was committed to my joy, then he would answer these prayers. You know, unanswered prayers, hey, man, that's a hard thing. I think about some of y'all who uh, have been praying for a very long period of time. Praying like Jesus teaches you to pray. Luke chapter 11, a shameless audacity on repeat. You've been praying for God to heal you or to heal someone that you love. You've been praying for a job. You've been praying for a spouse or, or for a child or, or even for God to save someone that you love, a family member, a friend. You think, hey, God, okay, I know you can do it, but you haven't done it. What's the deal? Like, do you not even care? Why else would you not do the thing that would bring me so much joy? And then, of of course, (laughs) there's just, you know, suffering and grief that we face in life. And those, just the presence of suffering, right? You just think, okay, God, God, like, (laughs) do do you care about me having joy? I mean, if you cared about having joy, you would remove this thing that's causing me so much grief or, or, or you would like you'd fix the world, like the stuff that's just out there and then we live in this broken world. With the, it's like, God, would you do something about that? And you haven't done something about that. It feels like at times you wonder, are you really committed to my joy? See, these things, all these things really cause us to question the very heart of God. If you're there, then I, I just want you to know, I get it, and I've been there. But I also want you to know that in John 16, Jesus says something and shows us something that uh, I think is really, really important. Because in this passage, he reveals something beautiful about the heart of God. And what we see here is that he is absolutely committed to our joy more than we even recognize. And so, uh, now real quick, before I you know, go further, let me just quickly remind y'all of biblical truth, that the reason why I say that, the, that Jesus reveals something here about the heart of God is because uh, Jesus is the embodiment of God, right? That's clear teaching in Scripture. That's what Jesus had actually really made clear to his disciples in the upper room discourse, if not way before that. But in John 14, 9, what, you remember what Jesus said? If you can remember back when we were in John 14, 9, way back in, I guess that was like December. But in that passage, Jesus said, hey, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, or I think about what Paul, how Paul puts it in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. And so, like, when you see Jesus, you're seeing what God is like. When you see Jesus, you're, you're seeing the Father. That Jesus reveals the heart of God. He reveals what God is like. And that's why this passage is awesome. And I think it's so encouraging for us to spend some time in this morning because here's what we see in Jesus is that um, on the night that he's going to be betrayed. In fact, most likely Jesus is saying this, these words to his disciples just maybe like an hour, maybe two hours before he's going to be betrayed and arrested. And so on that night, the day before, 
the cross, what Jesus is expressing here is that what's on his mind is the emotional state of his followers. And what he's concerned about is that they would have joy. Isn't that amazing? Like, <laughs> that, I just, I mean, I, I am blown away by that. That, that he would take time on this night to set their expectations and to prepare them emotionally for what was about to happen. See, he, he let me just kind of walk you through this. So starting in verse 16, right? He, this is what he says to him. He says, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. And this is a veiled statement about the fact that Jesus was in a little while, like, Less than 24 hours, he was going to die. And then in a little while, they would see him again because after that, on the third day, he would rise again, all right? So this is, that's specifically what Jesus is talking about here. But his disciples, as far, they don't get it. They don't, they don't understand. And he says, Linda read the passage, you saw it. Like they start asking each other a bunch of questions, right? Like, what's he talking about in a little while? And then like, we'll see him again. And like, what's, like, are, they, are, we, are we about to play hide and go seek or something like that? Like, I mean, they are confused. They don't know what's going on. And so verse 19, Jesus recognizes they don't know what he's talking about. They don't understand. And so uh, he, he explains, but he doesn't actually explain what he's about to do. Instead, he takes the time to explain what they're about to feel. What they're about to feel. So here, here's what he says. Verse 19. Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You, you will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. And then he, he goes on to talk about how uh, they are going to rejoice again when they see him and that no one will take their joy away and that their joy will be made complete. See, now, again, I, I don't want to move past this too quickly. So at the risk of belaboring this point, I just want to get, again, think about this, friends. This means that the disciples' joy is what Jesus was thinking about on the eve of the crucifixion, the eve of the cross. It means that he was thinking, of, instead of thinking about his rapidly approaching death and how that was going to affect him, he was thinking about how that was going to affect them. And so he wanted to encourage them with the promise that joy was coming. Now, again, what does that tell you about the heart of God? See, I don't know about you, but if I was about to be crucified, you know what I'd be thinking about? And this is, this is maybe a little crazy. I'd be thinking about how I was about to be crucified, you know, like, I mean, I'd be, that's what all that would be on my mind. And I would not be thinking about the happiness of those around me, right? That's not what I would be thinking about. I, I would not be trying to comfort them 
and prepare them for what I was about to go through. If anything, I would be looking to them to comfort me, right? I mean, this, this, the joy of my followers is not what I would be thinking about right before I went to the cross. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus is thinking about. This is what is on his mind. This is what he is concerned about. And again, that tells us something beautiful about the heart of God. It shows us that God cares about our emotional state. It tells us that your uh, joy or lack thereof is on his mind. It's a concern of his because he wants your joy to be made complete. And he knows that there are things in this life that will cause his father's grief, great grief and pain, and that's not lost on him. No, it concerns him because he's for our joy. And so on this night, knowing that his father's world was about to be rocked when he's arrested and then crucified, he just takes time to tell them three things that they must know when facing grief, okay? He communicates three things to help them and to help us experience his joy even in the face of hard, grief-inducing circumstances. I want us to look at them right now, okay? Sound good? You want to look at these three things with me? Well, you're stuck here if you don't, so, you know, we're going to do it anyway, so, yeah. I think this is going to be helpful. The first thing, the first thing that uh, Jesus communicates to them, what he wants to show them, is that uh, when you're facing grief, you must know a way to joy is through grief. And you must know that a way to joy is through grief. Now, that's not to say that the way to joy is always through grief. There is joy to be had that doesn't come through grief. But unlike our culture that just sees very good in anything, any type of suffering, that it's just like, it, it, it's, it's at best an interruption to the purpose of life, which we often see as just being happy. Or perhaps it's the very thing that could disrail us from the very thing that's the purpose of life, our happiness, that suffering is there's like it's irredeemable in the kingdom of God. That is not the case. That oftentimes a way to joy is actually through grief. And see, look, look at how Jesus puts it here. Look again at verse 20. He says, very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. Now think, think about that statement. Your grief will turn to joy. See, that, that means that the very thing that brought you grief would be the very thing that brings you joy. And you think, well, okay, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And so Jesus, being the master teacher that he is, illustrates it. He uses a metaphor of a woman giving birth. Here's what he says in verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come, but when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. See, which is to say that the very thing that caused the woman pain 
you know, giving birth to a child, is also the very thing that brings her joy when the child is born. That her grief turns to joy when she gets to hold her baby in her arms. See, sometimes the way to joy is actually through grief. Now, um, specifically in, in this, on this night, what Jesus is uh, trying to help his disciples see through this metaphor is that uh, the, the very thing that was going to cause them grief, which was Jesus' death, would also be the very thing that would bring them joy after his resurrection. Right? Like when Jesus is arrested and hung on the cross, their world shattered. The one that they thought was the Messiah that was going to free them from Roman oppression and was going to restore the kingdom of God and that they had placed all their hopes on. And when he died at the hands of the Romans that he thought that they thought that he was going to free them from, their worlds just fell apart. But when he rose again and they saw him, they were overjoyed. And not just because they were reunited with Jesus, but because they began to understand the very purpose of his death for them and what he accomplished through it and through his resurrection. That the very thing that had caused them grief was the thing that caused them joy. Friends, God can turn your grief to joy. He can turn your grief to joy. Jesus on this night, he wanted his disciples to know that. And I, I think we would do well to know that as well. See, this is the, a common way that God works. In fact, uh, theologians uh, have a uh, term for it. They, they refer to it as the, the great reversal. And then the great reversal refers to how God often brings about joy and blessing through something hard or sad or tragic or painful. That, for example, think about Sarah in Genesis, a woman unable to have a child. Think about Joseph in Genesis, sold into slavery by his brothers. And think about Moses. Uh, stammering murderer who has to flee his home to live in the wilderness. The, all of them and so many more stories like them in Scripture highlight that, that God uses people who suffer pain and hardship and grief and works through their circumstances to bring about life and joy for them and for many. See, this is the way that God often works. He turns grief into joy. He turns graves into gardens. He turns mourning into dancing. One of my favorite uh, pastors, my hero of mine, Tim Keller, he, he puts it like this in his book, Hope in Times of Fear. He says, There are good things of this world and the hard things of this world and the best things of this world, God's love, glory, holiness, beauty, joy. 
says, the Bible's teaching is that the road to the best things is not through the good things, but usually through the hard things, as Jesus himself has shown us. Or just think as Jesus famously taught as he began the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. He goes on to say, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice, have joy, rejoice, and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. See, God operates by the principle of the great reversal. And that's why he can turn your grief into joy. See, we're going to all face hardships and pain in this life. Like Jesus, later in this chapter, we'll see next week, he says that famous statement. It's, in this world, you will have trouble, right? But friends, in those times, we, like the disciples here, we, we will be greatly helped by knowing that God cares about what causes your grief, and that he's at work to bring about your joy even when you can't see it, that he's able to take the very thing that is causing your grief and turn it into the very thing that will bring your joy. So don't lose hope when you face trials of various kinds. For there is a reason to have hope for joy, even in the morning. And the cross is the cross and the resurrection is the ultimate proof of that. So in the midst of your pain and mourning, hang on to Jesus. For he cares about you. And he can turn your grief into joy. See, God's in God's kingdom. There's a way to joy that comes through grief. That's the first thing that Jesus wants to communicate to his disciples on this night as they face the grief of his pending crucifixion. Second thing that he wants to communicate to them is that uh, he is the ultimate source of joy. That he is the ultimate source of joy. See, look at verse 22. It says, Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Now notice, uh, what will cause them to rejoice? When they see, when Jesus sees them again, right? And implied in that is when they see Jesus again. That after, after his death, he rises again, they see him, there's going to be great rejoicing, which is exactly what we're told. John chapter 20, verse 20, Jesus appears to his disciples. He shows them where the nails went in his hands, where the spear went in. They see that he's alive, and then we're told that they were overjoyed. That's the word that John uses. They were overjoyed, and of course they were. They were reunited with their friend, with their rabbi, with their teacher. But it was even more than that. And actually, as time went on, they began to grasp on a deeper and deepening level 
just what kind of joy they had in Jesus as a result of what he had done. Because, see, at that moment, when he first appeared, they only got a surface level. But as it began to dawn on them of what it meant, what he had accomplished through his death and his resurrection, their joy just increased. See, they got that uh, if Jesus would die and rise again, then he must really be who he says he is. He's the son of God. He's, he's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. That that's God the Son, that's who's with us. And that, that begins to dawn on them. That they get that after Jesus' resurrection, they think, okay, wait, so your death was not a defeat, but actually a victory. Not over just not Roman oppression, but over sin and everything that keeps us separated from God, that you have made the way for us to have access to the Father. And that through your resurrection, you didn't just rise again, but you inaugurated the resur- resurrection or the renewal of all things. That all will be made new. And then you think, okay, the joy, the joy that's, that's there in Jesus, that he is the ultimate source of joy. That's why when you see him, you, you're overjoyed. You will rejoice with a joy that no one can take away. See, in this passage, Jesus continues, and he begins to elaborate a little bit on that joy, the depth of joy that's, that's ours in him because of what he has done for us through his death and resurrection. Here's what he says in, in verse 23. He says, in that day, meaning after his resurrection, in that day, you will no longer ask me anything. Now, real quick pause. That doesn't mean that we won't ask him for anything. That's actually a different word in the Greek. The word ask in this just means you won't ask as in a question. And what he's referring to is if you remember back in this passage, they had all these questions. Jesus said, in a little while I'm leaving, and in a little while I'm coming back, and they don't understand. And there's just this confusion about it. What's he talking about? And Jesus is saying, okay, after the resurrection, you're going to have clear understanding of who I am and what I've come to do. And see, it's a statement of a promise of greater intimacy and understanding, knowledge of God. That's one of the things that will happen after the resurrection. And then he continues. He says, very truly, I tell you, my father will give you whatever you ask in my name. That until now, meaning prior to the cross and the resurrection, until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. But he's saying here, after the resurrection, that's going to change. You'll ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. See, what Jesus is kind of getting at here is that after and because of his death and resurrection, his disciples and all of us who are in Christ have complete access to the Father. That we have the ability to go boldly before God and prayer, praying in the name of Jesus and knowing that the Father hears our prayers and relates to us in light of what Jesus has done for us. Knowing that the Father actually regards us and loves us just as he does his very own Son, God the Son. Which Jesus actually points to in verse 27 when he says, The Father himself 
loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I have come from God. Which is amazing. And joy completing. And all as a result of Jesus and what he has done for us. See, what Jesus is helping his disciples understand and through this passage helping us understand is that he is the source of ultimate joy. In him, we find the joy of knowing that we're fully known by God and still fully loved to the utmost. In him, we find the joy of knowing that nothing separates us from the love of God because of Christ Jesus our Lord. But in him, we, we have the joy of knowing that grief will not get the final word, but that the old way is going to pass away. And that one day, he will wipe every tear from our eye, as Revelation 21 says. And he will make all things new, that the things that grieve us will be no more. And in him, we will have pure and eternal Joy for all eternity. See, Jesus is the ultimate source of joy. And no one can take it away. In fact, that's the last thing that he kind of communicates to his disciples on this night as, they, as he prepared them to face this time of grief that was ahead of them. He, he just wanted them to know that, with, that in him, in Jesus, Joy is certain. The joy is certain. Like it's a, it's a done deal. It's a guarantee. Like you can take it to the bank. Joy is certain. Uh, look again at verse 22. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will. Not you may, not there's a chance of. You will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. It's a definitive statement. It applies to all of his disciples. He doesn't say some of you will. He doesn't say you may. He says you, as in to speak you know, proper text in English, uh, y'all will rejoice. It's a promise. It's a statement of fact. Friends, so many of the things that we uh, look to to bring us joy in our world, they are not certain. And they can be taken away from us. I mean, think about, yeah, we look to money, we look to, to career, to, to success, maybe to fame. Uh, we look even to, to love, to, to relationships with a, like a spouse or even our kids, and like, may it never be, but all those things can be taken away from us. None of those are absolutely certain. But Jesus, the joy that's found in him, man, it's guaranteed. No one can take it away. One reason why no one can take it away and that you can't lose it is because you didn't do anything to earn it. It was all done by him. He secured it for us, and therefore he gives it to us, and it won't be taken away from us. There's a joy in Jesus because he's the ultimate source of joy, and ultimately that joy is completely 
certain. See, for all who are in Christ, there is a day coming when you will see Jesus face to face. See, in this passage, he says, he tells his disciples, when you see me, you will rejoice. Well, friends, he, he said the same thing to us. When you see me, when I see you, you will rejoice. See, on that day, you're going to experience perfect joy, which means that no matter how hard life is and what trials and sufferings come your way, there is a day of great rejoicing ahead of you, certain to happen, because he secured it for you. And so if you're suffering, and if you're grieving now, I just say, listen to his promise. Now is your time, he says, for grief. You think, yeah, no doubt. But I will see you again. And, I, and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. Friends, hear his promise to you. And let it fill you with joy. Because his joy is certain. As Psalm 30 says, yeah, weeping may stay for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And so on this night, before Jesus would suffer the cross, as the time of his betrayal and arrest drew closer and closer, this is what he wanted his disciples to know. He wanted them to know that even though they would soon be grieving, joy was coming. And that their grieving would turn to joy when they saw him, for he is the source of joy. And he wanted them to know that because of what he was about to do, their joy was secure. It was certain. Friends, uh, holding on to these three truths has really helped me this year. As many of y'all know, uh, this, this fall I had a pretty bad health scare. Oh, spent six days in the ICU uh, when I was released from the hospital. I, I was operating somewhere around like 25 to 50 percent capacity. I just uh, was so easily exhausted all the time, dizzy a lot, just uh, probably all side effects of the medication I was on, and I was on a lot of medication. <laughs> I was having a very hard time, especially in the evenings, to uh, be very present with my family, to have any energy to hang out with my kids or with my awesome wife, Krista, which I just hated. And then uh, on top of that, uh, as, as happens when you spend a lot of time in the hospital, I spent a lot of my free time actually having to uh, be on the phone with insurance and the hospital trying to... <laughs> you know, deal with all those bills, which is, yeah, just suffice to say, I had a lot of things causing me a lot of grief this fall. But friends, through it all, oh, and, and I want to be careful here not to make this about me, but like, I want you to know, like, through it all, joy persisted. That through all of the grief, all of that, I, I still had this just strong undercurrent of joy that sustained me. 
And the reason why is because what Jesus says in John chapter 16 is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. See, I, 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 yeah, I was going through some really hard stuff. But man, I was so helped by knowing that even the very thing that was causing me grief, God could actually turn to be, bring joy. That just the hope of that didn't make me feel like what I was going through was completely pointless or useless. That I had this hope that like joy could actually come through this. Now, I want to be clear. I didn't know how God would do that. And to this moment, I still don't know. It's still not clear to me what all God was trying to do or is trying to do through the health scare. But even not knowing even when I couldn't put my finger on it, just the fact that it is a possibility that God can turn grief into joy helped me. It helped bring peace. It helped bring hope. And it helped bring joy. And namely, it helped me bring, actually have joy in the midst of it because that hope, you know what it did? It pushed me further into Jesus. As I was looking to him, like, God, what are you up to? What are you going to try to do? How are you going to work through this? I, I, was, I drew near to Jesus, depending on him, abiding in him, talking to him a whole lot in prayer, listening to him through scripture. And you know what that did? That All of that drew me closer to the source, the ultimate source of true joy. As I was pushed by my grief into Jesus more, I found more joy in him. See, I think about this great quote by C.S. Lewis. He, he says this, oh, Good things as well as bad things are caught by a kind of infection. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want love... Joy and peace you must get close to or even into the one where they're found in full measure. See, friends, as I was moved through the thing that was caused me grief to draw nearer and nearer to Jesus, the, the result of the suffering and trial just, just caused me to get more into the one where joy is found in full. And what I found in him was a joy that good health and increased energy could never match. Not because those things are bad, but because those things are fragile, it turns out. And they can be taken away. But in Jesus, I found a source of joy that would never be taken away. And that could sustain me even when my other circumstances went south. <laughs> there was joy to be found in the morning. And the hard times and the face of grief. And then there was just the joy, the sustaining joy of knowing, hey, this stinks. I hate what I'm going through, but one day this will not be the case. See, joy is certain because of what Jesus has secured through his death and resurrection. And I knew that one day I was gonna, I'm going to stand face to face with Jesus and my joy would be full Unlike anything I've ever experienced, that day is coming, and so I was filled with hope.
even in the midst of the hard times. See, friends, <laughs> life is hard. Grief, suffering, they're commonplace. But because of Jesus, joy is still possible. Even more, joy is certain. And so in the middle of the grief, in the midst of the grief and anguish, suffering and pain, I just encourage you to listen to the words of Jesus, what he had to say to his disciples the night when they were facing that. And to know he can turn your grief into joy. To know that he is the source of joy. So let the grief cause you to run to him. And just to know that joy is certain because of him. It's because of him and specifically because of the cross. And so to end this message, we're going to take communion together. When I ask the service to be in passing out the elements here. Friends, as they pass this out, uh, here's a couple things I want you to think about. The first is that uh, what, we're take, what we're remembering when we take communion is we're remembering the number one proof that God actually cares about you and your joy. That Jesus would die for you so that you could be brought into a relationship with him. The source of all joy is the proof. And yes, there are all those things that I began this message with especially unanswered prayer and grief and suffering in this world, those are hard realities. But friends, the cross tells us that the reason those exist isn't because God doesn't care for you, that he doesn't love you, and that he isn't for your joy. For he loved you so much that he left the joys of heaven to come and suffer life on earth, to feel the anguish and the pain of the cross in order to make the way for you to be reconciled to God, forgiven by him, have access to the Father, and enter into the joy of our maker. He is for your joy. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of that. And so as, as we take the communion elements in a minute, just pause before we take them and say, God, this is proof that you're for my joy. And this is proof that you're the ultimate source of joy. Look at who you are. Look at what you have done. let that encourage your hearts this morning. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Mm-hmm.